0: Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and chavruta Yerdana Asband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Ketubot, Daf Kaf Zion, page twenty-seven. All right, our daf has a mission at the beginning—not quite the beginning, but somewhere towards the beginning of a mitzvah and a mishnah at the end of a madbet. In the minute, in the in the middle. Sorry, pardon me. In the middle, there's Gemara. I'm going to take the mishnah. Yerdana, you're going to take the Gemara. Here we go. Ear shikavshua karkum. So this is a similar mode of, you know, setup of the cases as we've seen in the previous mission on the previous staff. We've got, a, there is about a woman who is, who is conquered, right? Here it's a city that was conquered um, and it's basically in a siege, right? So anybody who's, it says Kohanot, right? That makes it sound like they're female Kohanim. They're the women who are married to the Kohanim and any of them are now considered psoulots, right? Um, unfit, right? Whatever. They're forbidden to their husbands. The concern is that because the city was conquered, that they will have been raped in the process. Um, this is obviously a terrible, terrible... Everything about it is terrible, right? Um, but think about, you know, marauders in the ancient world or in the medieval world or whatever, and this is part of what um, is the... I, I want to say that the givens were givens for a reason. Let's put it that way. But if they had witnesses, even if a philu Evan, even if the witness was a slave, a philu shifcha or a female slave, then they're considered credible. Meaning if they're witnesses that they were not, well, right? Meaning these are people who would usually not be able to be witnesses. But in this case, because of the testimony that they're providing, namely that they're providing testimony that they were not raped, let's say, then they're still they're considered namanim. They're considered trustworthy. You want to say, well, to so let her say it about herself, right? Why can't she just come forward and say, "I wasn't raped"? And the answer is, a person is never really deemed credible when you're coming man. right? Trustworthy when they're coming to talk about themselves. It's not her fault, right? It's not because maybe she was violated. And it's not even because she's female. It's because it's about herself. And everybody's got a vested interest in the outcome of their own story, right? So that's that's the mission here. I want to just note that the Gemara here, and I'm, I'm going to turn it over to you in a moment, but the Gemara gives a counterexample. The same way that we saw a counterexample that, was, that turned out to be more generous than the phrasing of the mission in the previous staff, we see that again. R- Raminu, the Gemara has a question, a contradiction from a Mishnah in Masakhara Avodah Zara, Avodah right? If there is a, a leshit, is like a certain kind of military unit, right? And I, I couldn't tell you how one compares to the next, at least not yet. But the point here is that the military unit comes to the city, and the idea is, oh my goodness, they're going to rape everybody, right? Or they're going to, they're going to treat the city in this way of conquering. So the Gemara says, shalom. they come into the city if they came in during a peacetime, during a time of peace, p'tuchot asirot, the barrels of wine, right? Because we're talking about Avodah Zarah. Avodah Zarah meaning if the, if the non-Jewish soldiers handled the barrels of wine, then they would have to be considered forbidden, right? Because of issues of right? meaning the idea of libations that are made to foreign gods from wine. <clears throat> so the the Gemara here brings this mission that says if it's peacetime and they, you know, after they leave, any of the open barrels of wine are prohibited, right? Meaning they're like under suspicion that even if they didn't drink the wine, meaning obviously if the wine is drunk, then it's not there. But then there's still concern that they might have poured out, poured out some kind of libation. But the sealed barrels are permitted however Bashad milchama. but if it's wartime wrote but if it's wartime either of them both of them including the open barrels are permitted because the the marauding army right the the conquerors here don't have time to do any idolatrous libations right they need to you know continue in their conquering point being that you could see a case of you can make the case that also if you have people are coming to lay siege to a city under whatever difficult parameters, they might actually end up being too busy to go, you know, molest all the women. So, you know, again, the the Gemara's contrast here is it's not an exact, you know, match, so to speak. But I think that we need to kind of keep this in mind that even when we have very hard and fast cases as presented in the Mishnah, there are other hard and fast cases of you know examples, even examples that really happened, or case law, you know, either case law or or um, or theoretical law, where you kind of can punk- poke holes in the in the very firm case of the Mishnah.
1: Yeah, so the Gemara is gonna you know continue with that sort of idea, um, and it reads as follows: Amorav Yizibar Avin, Amorav Yitzchak Bar Ashiyan. So, you know, as you were saying, and they sort of try to lessen or soften the blow of the Mishnah. And here they have this statement from an Amora that really gives sort of a tremendous sort of leeway to this, right? If there's a single hideaway, right? Right, where woman could have hid, hidden, then it saves all the women. In other words, because we don't know which woman was there, but presumably, there, since there was an opportunity to be hidden, that's good enough. By Rabbi Yermia, Rabbi Yirmiya says, machzeket ela achat Okay, but what do we say if we know it could only hold one person, right? In other words, when it says the phrase of, achat, it's not completely, uh, you know, uh, it's not completely. Um, you know clear is it saying that there's one place they could have hidden away or if it's one hide away. Um, so uh, you know so I, I think it's an interesting uh, phrase there. Um, and so uh, I think it says there, right? Uh, so the question Rabbi Yermi is basically saying is is okay what if we know it's just one like only one person could fit in that place, right? Me and Reno call Hadar Hada Hai high <laughs> Would we say that each woman who comes before us, basically, she was the one who hid there? Like, are we, you know what I mean? Are we going to be that sort of, you know, it's almost like magical thinking to say like, oh, every, this woman comes with her husband and she says, I hid. This, the next woman comes, she says, I hid. You know, is that going to be possible? Like, are we going to really believe this? Or Dilma Lo-Emerina, or maybe we wouldn't say that. Like, if it couldn't really hold more than one woman, we wouldn't say that. Umay Mishne shivlin, right? And in what way is this different from a case of two paths, okay? And so here's the case they set up. A okay? If we have uh, one that is, uh, like you have two paths, one that you know had a corpse buried there, so it was ritually impure, and one that is ritually pure. V'halach mehem uva v'halach okay? And basically the cases you have Two people who walk. One walked walked on the first path. One walked on the second path. Again, you don't know which path is me which path is tachor, but we're going to say that both of them are actually tawhor. Um, Rabbi Yehuda Omer, im nishal zebi pneyatzmo, bezebi pneyatzmo So Rabbi Yehuda says no, it works. If each of them asked individually for themselves, you know, in other words, if I went and said, "Hey, I walked in these two paths. I don't know what happened. Which one I was on." then the rabbis allowed to basically say, okay, you're Tahor, because you don't know. And then if Anne, you came, and you said, oh, I also walked on these paths, you came right after me, also, we would be that it is Tahor. Shnei right? um, and um, and right? Uh, but if they both come at the same time, then we have to say, okay, we know then one of you had to have walked on the impure one, on the tummy you your tummy. So in other words, there's a little bit of like a magical thinking that's going on here in both of these cases, sort of like as long as you don't prove to me that that my premise isn't true, as long as I could have a little bit of doubt, I'm willing to basically rule in a make-out way. Rabbi Yossi Mayor ben Rabbi Yossi says no. Either way, we're going to have to say that they were uh, that they were tame. Um, and so, you know, if I'm a rabbi of itame, Rabbi Yochanan. So they go on to explain this a little bit more. Rava says in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, right? And everybody agrees if they come together, they're Tamei. But if they come one after the other, then we would say they're tahor. And that the Machlokas, right? The Machlokas is over. If someone comes and says, both me and my friend walked on these paths, right? But we each walked on a different path. What's the halacha? And then it has to do with, do you err more towards the side of, that that's considered to be a case of b'vatachad? Or do you say it's, you know, you ask together, or do you say it's, you ask one after, uh, one after the other? So I, I think, in the, and then this continues to go on until uh, the next Mishnah. But the idea here is, is that I think what we're seeing is sort of like, I'm going to call it like magical halachic thinking. Like, they know where they want to land. They know they want to be make-out. So as long as you give a little bit of leeway for them to allow to be make-out, like, you don't you don't disprove a possibility, then they'll be make-out. If you disprove the possibility, in other words, if both people come together and say, we walked on these paths together, we know one's tummy and one's tahor, yes. But, you know, uh, but if they don't do that... Um, Then, uh, you know, then that's uh, then that then that seems to be that as long as there's like a possibility, then we see that halacha allows it, Um, which I find fascinating. I'm a little and I really do understand it in the the case of the women with the husbands. It's a little interesting. They're willing to be so make out with two and Tara. Right. Because you could make an argument like, okay, it's just one thing. An individual, you have to take care of it. But like, who really cares? It's a hassle. But I, I think, again, we're trying to see like where are the possibilities of where we can be make-out? And if we can come up with anything to hang our hat on, anything to allow a little plausibility of a more make-out situation, we take it.
0: I think that's well said. Um, I think it's also interesting, and this is really a much bigger conversation for a mu- very different time, You know, the question of the context in terms of determining halacha or determining practice um, in light of you know, other mitigating factors and to what extent uh, the person deciding the halacha is going to take those into consideration. Um, I'm going to go on with the Mishnah. As I said, there's one at the end of the daf. Okay. I'm a Rabbi Zechariah ben Akatsav. So let's just pause for a moment and hear a few words about Rabbi Zechariah ben Akatsav because he's kind of interesting. He was a Kohen, which becomes relevant of all these Mishnah that are talking about status issues, right? Um, He's a Kohen and he was also a Tana, who lived in the time of the generation of the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash of the second Beit Hamikdash? So that puts him right in the as one of the students or one, even one of the older students of Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai, and he often, you know, appears in the context with other students of Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai. And here we're going to see, you know, that again the reality, kind of his reality, is kind of front and center in this Mishnah. Amar Rabbi Zer, uh, Amar Zer, Rabbi Zechariah ben HaKatzav, HaMa'on HaZeh, HaMa'on HaZeh is an oath, right? He's taking an oath by the, by by the abode, right? That's the, I'm not saying that, he's saying that, right? Um, meaning specifically, taking an oath by God, right? Lo zaza yada mitoch yadi misha'a goyim vaad He He says, I'm swearing right he's taking this oath that his wife's hand did not move from his hand or you know from the time that the non Jews entered Jerusalem until they left meaning the point being you know if they're holding hands this whole time he's saying he's he's making a very strong pronouncement that she was not violated and so the sages say to him um they say amrulo And they give this answer, which is the same, you know, the final line that we saw in the previous Mishnah, which is that a person cannot testify about himself, meaning when he's testifying about his wife, it's the same legal status as if he's testifying about himself. So therefore, his testimony is not considered acceptable. And therefore, she is forbidden to him because, again, he's a Kohen. And that's the whole story here, meaning all of this has been, I would say, fairly theoretical in this, you know, a town that was conquered, and we can picture it in you know in the terms of a novel. And then here we've got Reb Zichari ben Akatsav who says when they came to Jerusalem, and it's kind of like, yo, right? Oh my goodness, right? Of course, that happened. That Jerusalem was conquered and surrounded, and you know, run through by non-Jews. And what did that mean for the Kohanim and their wives, of which Reb ben Akatsav was one? Um, you know. Anyway, it's it's um, it's poignant and it's kind of terrible because even though he's got facts on his side, the halacha is not.
1: Right. So, I, you know, I think that whole case that it specifically comes from a Kohen is very interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The Gemara here goes on. I should just, you know, flesh it out. Right. Once they rule that he can't that they can't be together. He still he did not divorce her. He ends up the, the gemara says that he set up a, a a house in his courtyard, and you know, and that was hers. But they never had yichud together. So that when she would leave that courtyard, when she'd go out, she'd go with her sons, whatever. She would not be in the courtyard with only him. Um, and likewise, when she would go into the house, she would make sure that the sons were with her, whatever. Like this became a very messy. Very careful situation, and I imagine that it must have like I, I don't know. It, it's hard to imagine this being anything other than a source of frustration because they both know that she wasn't violated, and yet they're going to be so so very careful to keep the halacha. Yeah. The halacha, that historical backdrop, I think, kind of really shifted this these particular halachot in a in a serious way. And right. by the and, way, and by the way, see. this is Mister Yardena. Why? Because it's the nineties, and we're we're in the time um, of where they came into you know to destroy Yerushalayim. That's you know. true.
1: That's a good nasnister. But but that whole story afterwards is just fascinating. That you know, it's not that he really lived with her, but she stayed in the courtyard. I mean, it's it's the the whole piece of like sort of really trying to work around a particular halachic solution. There's a piece of me that can't believe that that actually was considered to be acceptable you know, because we, you know, but it doesn't say that he took another wife. So I, I just found that whole story to be fascinating. Indeed. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this top and our Talking Town with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>